Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Deblina Chakraborty. And this is our special royal weddings episode. Get excited. Royal weddings, kind of. Kind of royal weddings. Because, you know, I thought about it for a while and I figured that some of you might not really be that interested in royal weddings. Go figure. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> I mean, just judging by by the type of suggestions that we normally get. And actually, Candace and I have already done a royal weddings episode. So if you are the type who who loves that type of thing, you can go back in the archive and listen. But, you know, this is still related, but it still has something kind of for everyone. And it all goes back to the choice of William and Kate to pick Westminster Abbey over St. Paul's Cathedral or other potential sites for their wedding. And the question is, you know, why did they pick that site over the others? Part of the reason, they think it's cozy. Again, go figure. (laughs) Yeah, go figure. I mean, I can see that. It's a beautiful space. It is beautiful. It has a lot of stuff in it. It has a lot of connections to their family. It does. To Prince William's family. Yeah. According to William's private secretary, he was quoted in People as saying, it's almost the feeling of a parish church. And I mean, that might be kind of hard to understand if you've visited Westminster Abbey and it's been filled with tons of tourists and it is a huge soaring gothic space. But maybe if you're a Windsor, it is kind of a parish church in a way. Yeah, like we said, it's an important site for the family and for British monarchs in general. It's where they have their coronations. It's where many of them are buried. And for William personally, it's the site of his mother's funeral and his grandmother's wedding. Yeah, so a lot of good and bad memories there personally. So as you tune in to the royal wedding on April 29th this year, what is the history of the backdrop that you're looking at? That's sort of the point of this episode. I want to give you a few facts to trade around with your friends while you're all watching the royal wedding together. So you'll start sound like a real smarty if you start with some facts about the backdrop, which starts out with saints and kings. So obviously the structure is old and even older than it looks. The history goes back way beyond even what you see. It um, starts Appropriately, with a legend, the first Christian king of the East Saxons founded it near the marshy banks of the Thames on Thorny Island in the 7th century. Not long after his rule, the Danes sacked the place, though. Okay, but it's likely that that's just a legend and no more than that. What we know for sure is that by the 10th century, a group of Benedictine monks had set up set up shop there, essentially. And by 960, St. Dunstan, who was then Bishop of London, remodeled their monastery and built a new church. And it's also around that same time that the church got its first royal patron, which obviously started a long relationship between the abbey and the royals. And that was King Edgar. And he granted the monks a huge amount of land. And if you have visited London you would be blown away if you saw this amount of land like superimposed on a modern map because it's pretty much the whole West End. And at this time, the Benedictines, who, of course, have taken vows of poverty, obedience and celibacy, they spend most of their time farming that land and reading. Later, as they grow more prosperous, they manage the land. Through their entire history, there are probably only ever 30 to 60 monks, but there would be a lot of lay servants. At one time. Yeah. Craftsmen, almsmen around there, too. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a pretty thriving community. 
But the church that we know didn't start to take shape until about a 100 years after that, when Edward the Confessor set up his palace nearby the monastery. And, you know, he was a pretty pious guy, as we all know. And he decided he wanted to to build a church, a new church for the monks there. And it was a Romanesque building. It was quite large. It was cruciform, cross-shaped, and it was consecrated December 28th, 1065. Unfortunately for Edward, he didn't exactly get to enjoy it because he died seriously just a few days after it was consecrated and he was buried there. But it's likely that he at least had some intention to make the church a coronation spot for British monarchs. Until then, it had been pretty haphazard. They were crowned anywhere from Bath, you know, just pretty much all over the country. So he was maybe hoping for some sort of centralized location for this really important ceremony. Yeah, and it's possible that Edward's immediate successor, Harold, acted on this intention and was crowned there after Edward's death, but we're not certain about that. Yeah, it's pretty pretty shaky whether that actually happened. The first accepted coronation was appropriate because it was way more dramatic. It, it just makes a lot more sense if you're thinking of history as a as a neat package. Instead of the defeated Harold, it is the victor, William the Conqueror, who brought Britain under Norman rule after the Battle of Hastings in 1066, and he's the first one who is known to be crowned there. And William's choice of the Abbey for his coronation on Christmas Day, 1066, might have also sort of been a PR move on his part to stress his legitimacy as the new king, which, as far as blood claims went, it was not particularly strong. Yeah, but regardless of the reason, he sets a precedent by doing that. And every monarch who has been crowned since then has been crowned at Westminster. Most recently, of course, Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. 38 of them in all have been coronated there. Well, and interestingly, the only exceptions are the two uncrowned kings of England. Interestingly, again, both former podcast subjects, one, Edward V, who is one of the princes in the tower. We talked about him pretty recently with the Lambert Simnel episode. And then the other is Edward VIII, who abdicated to marry Wallace Simpson. So pretty strong record there on on coronations at Westminster. Still, though, Edward the Confessor's church is not the church that we know. So it's still transformed a lot from that time. On October 13th, 1165, the Pope made Edward a saint. So then it becomes a pilgrimage site in addition to a coronation site. So it's got dual a lot purpose. going for it all of a sudden. Definitely. And that cachet makes the Gothic architecture aficionado Henry III decide to tear the thing down and rebuild it totally in 1245. It's kind of an ironic homage, I guess, to somebody to tear down his own church. But they were of the opinion new is better, I guess. So the new Westminster is soaring. It had pointed arches. There were flying buttresses, or I mean, I should say there are. This is what still exists today. Flying buttresses, rib vaulting on the ceilings, rose windows, an apse added to the traditional cross shape. And all of this is remarkably similar to the new Gothic style cathedrals that were popping up all over France. In fact, the three master masons who supervised the work on Westminster were definitely influenced by cathedrals in Amiens and Chartres and uh, most notably the cathedral in Reims, which was a coronation cathedral because after all, Westminster is by this point pretty firmly established as a coronation church. And so 
the needs of the monks and and um, the the kind of things they need in a church have to be balanced with a large audience that's going to be there for a coronation. It has to be a theater in a way. So it was a bit roomier. Definitely. And this is more like the cathedral that we know today, as Sarah mentioned, but try to imagine it without the clutter of the countless monuments and the tombs. Instead, there were paintings, two of which were found in the 1930s. Yeah, relocated. So apparently cathedrals take a really long time to build because it wasn't until October 1269 that the choir in the eastern parts were finished enough to reinter St. Edward's bones, and they're still there today. Yeah, and Henry III became the next monarch to be buried there. His project definitely outlived him. He died partway into the construction. And that's a 200-year gap between those Westminster royal burials. But it starts a trend, too. I mean, I guess nobody really wanted to be buried in Edward's church for some reason. But Henry's church is the place to be if you're a royal, because the abbey becomes the top choice for royal burials for about the next 500 years. There's 17 monarchs buried there up until George II, when... Basically, they run out of room and have to start being buried at Windsor instead. And it's not just monarchs like Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots, that are married there either. There are some other very big names buried in Westminster Abbey as well. For example, Geoffrey Chaucer. He was an abbey tenant and was buried in the South Transept in 1400. And after that, Westminster pretty much became the place to be. Yeah, if you were an artist or a poet, it definitely was the place to be. But ironically... Chaucer is just there because he was the clerk of works to the Palace of Westminster at the time, not because he was one of the greatest writers of all time. Sort of strange if you think about it. But today, Poets Corner has all sorts of notable authors who are buried there. Edmund Spencer, Tennyson, Robert Browning, Samuel Johnson, Charles Dickens, Rudyard Kipling, Thomas Hardy. And then there are a lot who have monuments, too. And I think people sometimes get confused about that. They think that Shakespeare is buried at Westminster Abbey, whereas, of course, he's not. He just has a... A monument. Yeah, a monument. Yeah, in addition to him, Milton Keats. Shelley, Byron, Wordsworth, Blake, Jane Austen and the Brontes, all sorts of folks. But back to Henry III. After his death, the construction continues according to plan for about 150 years. That doesn't mean distinctive additions weren't added in later centuries, though. Yeah, most notably, there's the Lady Chapel of Henry VII that was started in 1503, and the Western Towers, which that's probably, if you look at a picture of the exterior of the abbey, you're probably looking at that side. They were built in the 1740s by Nicholas Hawksmore and John James. And interestingly, they're often misattributed to Sir Christopher Wren. He's sort of the bigger name there of architects of the time. And I saw all sorts of articles that had kept up that that um, misidentification of the architect. Pretty strange. So we may have just illuminated that fact. Yeah, for- that, that can be a good <laughs> fact for your friends, I guess. Um, but these towers were not just slapped on for no reason. They were sort of built as part of an overall renovation because the abbey had fallen on pretty hard times between the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII and the civil wars. It was really not in good shape at all. It needed to be fixed up. Some of the stone needed to be replaced. Just a lot of work. Yeah, and it even underwent a name change after that under Elizabeth I. It became the Collegiate Church of St. Peter Westminster, as it's properly known today. 
Um, it was also severely damaged during the Blitz when firebombs burned through the roof. Fortunately, though, most of the treasures had been evacuated. It's kind of interesting how they managed to save some of these. The tapestries, effigies, gates, and manuscripts were whisked off to country houses. Glass was boarded up and sandbags covered the tombs that couldn't be taken out. And the two most precious abbey artifacts were also saved. Edward I's coronation chair was one that went to Gloucester Cathedral, and the Stone of Scone was buried under the building. Yeah, but my favorite thing that was saved, or the facts about how it was saved, the wax effigies of the monarchs went to the Piccadilly Tube Station. I'm just imagining, <laughs> imagining like wax royals sitting around waiting for the train. I'm sure they were boxed properly, but some of them didn't fare so well, though, right? No, no, they didn't at all. Unfortunately, some of the effigies were still damaged, and it allowed them to only redisplay the heads after the war. So, um, you know, wax doesn't last forever. Yeah, hopefully they knew that going in, <laughs> going into it all. But, you know, wax heads are probably not putting you in the mood for the royal wedding. We're trying to psych you up here and not make you think of macabre wax figures. So we're going to talk a little bit about the history of royal marriages at Westminster, because that's kind of the whole point of this whole episode. Yeah, and it's a surprisingly short history. There have really only been 15 royal weddings in the Abbey. In the 19th century, royals actually tended to favor St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle, which was another royal peculiar like Westminster. Yeah, that's kind of like it falls specifically under the monarch's domain. But they often also chose the Chapel Royal of St. James's Palace, and that's definitely a pre-television kind of location because it only seats 100 starting in the early 20th century, you really had to pick a venue where a lot of people could see you. Um, that Chapel Royal, for instance, is where Victoria and Albert were married. But Westminster Abbey itself became fashionable when Victoria's granddaughter, Princess Patricia of Connaught, chose it to marry a commoner in 1919. And it was the first royal wedding there in 650 years. Yeah, but the ironic part about that is that at, for a royal wedding, it's ironic, I should say, is that she was royal going in. But not coming out since she was marrying a commoner. Yeah, it usually goes the other way. Yeah. <laughs> By the 1920s, George V's kids had started getting married there too. Patricia had really started a trend, I guess. George's two sons were married there. His daughter was married there. Um, in 1923, his son, the future George VI, married uh, the future Queen Mother. So. Queen Elizabeth's parents were married there in 1923. And then Queen Elizabeth herself was married there as Princess Elizabeth in 1947. And her sister, Princess Margaret, was also married there in 1960, and Elizabeth's daughter, Princess Anne, in 1973. Then, of course, her son, Prince Andrew, to Sarah Ferguson in 1986. So, yeah, I know a lot of people were were surprised that Will and Kate had chosen Westminster Abbey over St. Paul's because his parents were, of course, famously married at St. Paul's. But when you learn all this, it's not really that surprising. Definitely not. And it makes a lot more sense when you know the history. Yeah, definitely a mix of family history and royal history in general there. So if you are going to be watching the royal wedding and you have um, comments about Westminster Abbey that you want to send us, definitely feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and we're on Facebook. So yeah, let us, let us know what you think and let us know if you if you notice anything cool about the the abbey during the television ceremony and um, or if you know of any cool facts that we left out 
Yeah, and if you want to learn a little bit more about the royal wedding or royal weddings in general, there is tons of content, articles, slideshows, quizzes, all sorts of stuff on TLC weddings. And for old school stuff you missed in history class fans, you might even find Candace's royal wedding commentary. So all sorts. Yeah, I mean, there could even be some articles on there, don't you think, Sarah, that might help out Will and Kate as they're getting ready? I think so. To go down the aisle. So Uh, they're maybe not too keen on reading lots of articles about themselves, but maybe not about themselves, (laughs) but they could read about, you know, how to how to plan your wedding, how to pick out the right <laughs> wedding dress, a lot of this content that Candace is putting together. So, yeah. Will and Kate, if you're out there, good luck to you. And if you would like to read some of our content, you can look it up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 